Why is it we always want to know what we don't really need to know? (laughs) Why are we so interested in everybody else's business? You know, I don't know if curiosity really killed the cat, but it can sidetrack us from the important issues in life. In fact, some people get so caught up in other people's business that they neglect their own. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. They didn't have Facebook or Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, 2,000 years ago. But people were still curious about the affairs of others and sometimes to the neglect of their own responsibilities. Peter was moving in that direction when he asked Jesus, what about this man? We're wrapping up our study in John's gospel this morning. We're in the last chapter, the last few verses. Peter turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back on his breast at the supper and and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? As we've seen, Peter had just been given the opportunity to reaffirm his love and commitment to Christ three times. And he had been recommissioned as a shepherd of Christ's flock. But included with that commission was a prophetic statement that Peter probably did not fully understand, but made him very uncomfortable. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is saying this to Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, You will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. As John would later note, this was a prophecy of Peter's death by crucifixion. And even though he didn't fully understand it at the time, he did catch the part about being taken where he didn't want to go. Jesus concluded his words to Peter by saying, follow me. And taking it literally, when Jesus started walking away, he followed. But when he looked back, he could see that John was following as well. And he asked, well, what about this man? In effect, he was asking, what's John supposed to do? What's going to happen to him? Now, was it idle curiosity? Was it a desire for companionship in ministry? Was it genuine concern about John's welfare? Or was it an attempt to make sure that he hadn't been given a harder assignment than had John? There's no way to know for sure. But we do tend to determine fairness by comparison. And I think Peter wanted to know if John was also going to be taken where he didn't want to go. He wanted to make sure John would be given a fair share of apostolic responsibilities and that he would have to pay the same price for discipleship that he would have to pay. Jesus' response is, 
What is that to you? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The saying therefore went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Now Jesus is pretty abrupt here. He basically said, that's none of your business. Whether Jesus wanted John to remain until he returned or not wasn't something Peter should have been concerned about. The only thing he should have been concerned about was obedience to the command given to him. You follow me. It didn't matter what Jesus had for John to do. All that should have mattered to Peter was what Jesus had for him to do. Now, apparently what Jesus said here hit the rumor mill. And John takes this opportunity to clear up a misunderstanding that is circulated, he says, among the brethren. Now, obviously there's a textual problem here. John must have said sisters. Uh. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> The rumor was that John wouldn't die, that he would remain until Jesus returned. And by the time of this writing, John was the last of the apostles. The rest had all died a martyr's death, but John was still living in Ephesus. He was the grand old man of the church in his 80s or 90s. Word had gone out that John would remain on earth until the return of Christ. So he wanted to make sure that it was understood that Jesus had been speaking hypothetically here. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? The statement was intended to silence Peter. He was trying to make some comparisons that he had no right to make. Peter should have known better. Jesus had definitively addressed the issue of comparing responsibilities and rewards in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. It's a parable that not only should have spoken to Peter, it's a very important parable for us to understand in our relationships with one another and with our Lord. Let's take a look at that parable briefly. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went again. He went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you too, go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. And when those hired first came, 
they thought that they would receive more. And they also received each one denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have bone, uh, borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus the last shall be first and the first last. Now I think we would probably all agree that that parable violates our sense of fairness. But it shouldn't. The landowner did what was fair to the workers hired first. He gave them what they had agreed upon. And if he chose to do something extra for others, that was his business. It's not our place to tell someone what they can or cannot do with that which belongs to them. And, as Paul made clear in Romans 14.4, it's not our place to judge the servant of another. A servant is expected to do whatever his master tells him to do. And only the master can judge if he's doing it acceptably. And a servant cannot say a master is unfair because he's given his servants different responsibilities or treats them differently. Besides, it's, it's foolish to go through life comparing. You know, we can always find someone who's been given a better deal than us in life if we've convinced ourselves that most have. Our concern should simply be doing what we believe Christ would have us do and what we agreed to do when we accepted him as Savior and Lord. It's not our place to compare our service to him with that of someone else, the sacrifices they make or the rewards they receive. And it's not our place to worry about whether someone's doing their fair share or not. Our only concern is doing our fair share. And our fair share is doing all that Christ has put in our heart to do. We are answerable to the master, not to each other. If Christ has put in your heart to do something, just do it. If the Spirit is prompting you to do something, just do it. And by all means, don't sit back and insist, I've done my share. Let somebody else do it. You know, the little ditty about everybody, somebody, and nobody is true. If everybody assumes somebody is going to do it, nobody usually does it. There are lots of things that need to be done in service to Christ, both outside and inside the church. Some are called to ministries of benevolence in the world at large. Some are called to advocate for the oppressed. Some are called into academia to expose the fallacies of a secular worldview. Some are even called into politics to improve the societies in, in which we live. 
And there are, of course, many things that need to be done within the church. We obviously need preachers and teachers. We need shepherds of the flock and under-shepherds who care for small groups within the flock. We need workers who see what needs to be done and who are willing to do what needs to be done around the building and on the grounds. We need those who are always willing to give a helping hand or offer an encouraging word. And we all need to be actively reaching out to those outside the church who need to be brought into relationship with Christ and his family. The master has placed within the heart of all his servants the work he has for them to do. And your job is to just do it. Without worrying about what his other servants are doing or not doing. Peter had to learn what John apparently already knew. The last two verses of the Gospel of John. This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. Peter and John were both faithful apostles of Christ. But their ministries were different. Peter was a pioneer in the establishment of the church. He preached the first gospel sermon that brought 3,000 Jews into the church, and he's the one who opened the door for Gentiles. He was the acknowledged leader of the apostles and was in the limelight wherever he went. Most believe John was the youngest of the apostles when they were commissioned. But his ministry lasted far longer than the rest. Far beyond 50 years, I might add. Paul referred to him as a pillar in the church. And he was not only a pillar of strength through his personal witness, but his written witness as well. In his gospel, his letters, and the revelation he received... He bore witness to what he knew to be true. That's what he's doing here. He's writing a gospel. He's bearing witness to Christ. He's not writing a complete biography of Jesus' life. He's simply sharing what he knows and what we need to know to have faith in Christ. He made that clear when concluding the previous chapter. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus gave to Peter all he needed to know to do what Christ had called him to do. And we've been given all we need to know to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing 
we may have life in his name. There are obviously many things we'd like to know. And many of the things we'd like to know can be of great benefit. But we can't know everything. And not everything is beneficial. And as Peter found out, there are some things we have no right or need to know. So what is it that we do need to know? While most in our educationally focused and informationally overloaded society would no doubt agree, we really need to know what was written long ago in the Bible. And we not only need to know it, we need to know that it's true. John said what he wrote was true and that he could bear witness to it. He actually saw what Jesus did and heard what Jesus said. He lived with him for three years, as did the other apostles. What they recorded was not hearsay. They were eyewitnesses to what they wrote. Now, John is writing his gospel at the end of the first century, 60 or 70 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew had written years earlier, as had Mark and Luke, two associates of the apostles. And as had Paul, who had a life-changing personal encounter with a risen Christ after the ascension. By now, they had all died a martyr's death. They had all refused to renounce what they knew to be true. Had they made up stories about Jesus, they wouldn't have died for it. But because they knew what they had written was true and their lives had been changed by it for all eternity, they stood by it in the face of whips and stones and swords and even crosses. Others who lived within the first century and also knew what had happened could verify the truthfulness of their accounts. And their accounts were widely copied and distributed. We don't have any gospels or letters written by the authors themselves, but we do have ancient copies of what they wrote. And some were written within a century or two of the originals. In fact, we have nearly 6,000 partial or complete Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and nearly 20,000 ancient manuscripts that were translated into other languages. And by comparing the manuscripts, scholars have determined that what we read in our Bibles today is almost exactly what was written 2,000 years ago. Small discrepancies that have been found are limited to minor scribal errors and in no way affect the theological truth of the biblical record. And as I've been preparing for our trip to the Holy Land to see the sacred sites, I've been reminded how archaeological discoveries have confirmed the historical accuracy of the biblical record. So yes, all we need to know of eternal consequence 
can be found in the Bible. And everything written in Scripture is absolutely true. But we need to read it, believe it, and obey it. And while it is true that not everything Jesus ever said or did has been revealed because there aren't enough books in the world to contain all that the eternal God has done, everything we need to know about him can be found in what has been revealed. And if we believe what has been revealed about him and obey what he's told us to do, we are guaranteed life, eternal life, in his name. What has been written, however, is not just for the chosen few. For as John also told us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Like John, we've been commissioned by Christ to tell the world what we know about him and to tell everyone what he has done for them. It's not our place to compare ourselves or our service to him with others. We're not going to be graded on a curve when we stand before the judge. All will be judged on the basis of their faith in Christ and their obedience to his will. If you've not expressed your faith to Christ and made known your desire to serve him, I invite you to do so, even now. Because now is not the time to worry about the faithfulness of or responsibilities given to others. Your only concern right now is your response to him. He wants you to follow him. And that's all you need to know. Let's stand.